You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Jerusalem Demsis, a policy reporter here at Vox, and today I'm joined by our very own Dylan Matthews. Hey! And special guest Joey Politano. Hi there! Joey is uh, brand new to the takes game, uh, but has and has an impossible to pronounce substack where he talks mostly about macroeconomic policy. Joey, how do we how do we pronounce this? It's apricitas. It's A-P-R-I-C-I-T-A-S, but I was informed that you pronounce C's as K. In, uh, in Latin. And yeah, semi-professional take-haver and economics writer. I should also note that everything I say here is my personal views and not that of my employer. So if you have any problems, uh, please DM me angrily on Twitter and don't send any emails. <laughs> yes, employer. please DM him your rude thoughts. Um, he does appreciate them. So today uh, we're going to talk a little bit about inflation. Joey wrote a blog post that got really popular about uh, answering the question of whether inflation can be blamed on rising corporate profits. Spoiler alert, Joey does not think so. But before we get into all of that, um, let's just level set here. Uh, Latest inflation numbers from December show that the Consumer Price Index, or the CPI, increased 7% year over year, and core CPI, which excludes food and energy prices, went up 5.5% year over year. Joey, can you just talk to us a bit? What's what's going on with inflation here? Uh, Can you give us some uh, sense of what these numbers mean? Yeah. So you mentioned the Consumer Price Index is up more than 7%, which is highest level in decades. And the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, which is the price index the Federal Reserve targets, a more comprehensive measure of, of inflation is running higher than 5%, also its highest level in decades. So it's a remarkable turn from the past decade where we've had very low inflation and below the 2% target that the Federal Reserve sets for itself. What's especially remarkable about this inflation is how narrow it was, uh, recently becoming broader. But so if you took the trimmed mean PCPI, uh, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, so you say Everything that increased the most, everything that decreased the most, we lop it off. We just look at the stuff in the middle. That's only up about 2.8%. Core inflation, which is just less food and energy, is up you know, pretty significantly. And it's because what's usually considered core goods have been behaving like food and energy. So a great example is actually motor vehicles. About 2% of that 7% increase is due purely to cars, especially used automobiles, which are up almost 50% in price and services related at like car rentals and things like that. And then another percentage is just pure energy. So that's oil, gas, piped gas, anything you could imagine to dealing with power, which tends to be very volatile, but is uh, jumped up extremely high since the end of 2020. And we've seen a remarkable shift with durable goods. So for the last 60 years, the price of services relative to durable goods has been increasing, meaning, you know, 
the price of appliances, cars are getting cheaper, but the price of services are increasing. This is a pretty normal economic phenomenon. As things become more productive, you expect appliances and fridges to get cheaper, but there's only a certain number of haircuts a barber can do per hour. That number doesn't really go up over time. So services become more expensive. This is the first time in more than half a century we've seen a big jump in durable goods prices relative to services. So there is a lot of inflation. It's becoming more broad-based, but right now it's still narrowly focused on a few sectors because people are spending a lot more money on goods and a lot less money on services. And the supply chains for those goods are very stressed. One, one thing I wonder about numbers, and, and you, you do labor statistics and you're meshed in this stuff, so, so you seem like the right person to ask. When inflation is so concentrated in a few goods, are these measures capturing people switching away from them? That, that substitution always seems like a hard problem when you're measuring inflation. And it seems like one thing that's probably happening right now is fewer people want to buy used cars than they used to because used cars are really, really expensive and people might expect the price to go down later. Are we seeing that or is this just sort of like spiraling rather than, than calming itself down in that fashion? On the, on the first like semi-statistical question, the consumer price index doesn't care about substitution. So uh, a normal economic theory would be if the price of something goes up, you're going to buy something that gives you a similar level of output. So if the price of coffee goes up, you're going to buy more tea instead. CPI doesn't account for that. The PCPI tries to account for that level of substitution. You are seeing real consumption of motor vehicles down. Part of that is just purely the fact that there's a shortage of motor vehicles. There's about 3.7 million fewer uh, motor vehicles in the United States than there would be if production had continued as it was pre-pandemic. But yeah, you don't you don't capture that fully in CPI, but you do capture it fairly well in the personal consumption expenditures price index. There's also a change CPI. Um, so this is the weeds. You, you're contractually obligated to listen to me talk about price indexes and the differences between them. <laughs> We're in the weeds now, but absolutely. CPI excludes a lot of stuff that isn't based on discretionary income. So PCEPI covers a lot more healthcare and health insurance, and CPI covers more like housing, things that you would spend the cash that shows up in your bank account on versus all spending in the economy, which PCEPI tries to cover. And so for that reason, CPI tends to run a little hotter also because of those methodological differences, like I said, not accounting for substitution and some different reweightings and a little more technical stuff about airplane tickets. And <laughs> that part's even too weedsy for the weeds. Yeah. And one thing that you mentioned is sort of this idea of, of, of what's happening with supply chains, because I feel like the common story that's been told about both inflation and also why it's been so difficult for people to get their things in time is just that like, oh, like for some reason our ports are overloaded or, you know, there's something going wrong with shipping or something like that. I think the quintessential moment of the pandemic was that ship that was stuck in the Suez Canal, <laughs> um, which is a great metaphor. But it, it actually ended up not being a great metaphor because the problem is not really right that like there's something wrong with the ports or something like has broken down in um, a normally functioning system there, but that aggregate demand is just up a lot more than we would expect. Like people are just demanding a lot more goods than has been in the past. Is that something that you're 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 noticing too, Joey? Yeah. So to to be really careful about the wording here, I wouldn't say aggregate demand is too high. If you look at like total spending since the start of 2020, it's about one trillion dollars less than you would expect. But if you look at spending on goods, that's up very dramatically. So maybe not broad aggregate demand, but specifically people, you know, they're stuck at home or they need additional things at home that they normally got at the office and they're buying a lot more goods, you know, buying more groceries, going out less. That was the initial uh, shock of the pandemic. 
now it's consumption is shifted in a lot of ways. So people are actually going to restaurants about as much and they're eating more food at home. And that's put some stress on supply chains. Most of it is, as you're right, it's like increased consumption of a lot of goods, a lot of electronics, a lot of appliances, a lot of furniture. There's a few key ones where it's actually about the same level of consumption or less consumption. So gasoline, about the same level of consumption as pre-pandemic would expect. Uh, motor vehicles, a lot less. As I mentioned, the uh, motor vehicle supply chains were absolutely torched uh, by the early pandemic and were way, way behind on production there. But it is true that most of the things you're seeing very large price increases in, you're also seeing significant quantity increases in. Yeah, that's a good clarification. So now let's shift over to corporate profits. Um, so a lot of people are pointing that there are larger corporate profits during the pandemic among publicly traded companies than in the same period in 2019 before the pandemic. In 2021, I think close to 100 of public traded companies saw their profit margins go up at least 50% relative to 2019, according to the Wall Street Journal. So it's a very you know, I guess like pretty logical story here that the reason why prices are going up is that companies are taking advantage of this moment to raise prices and to take on more profit rather than, and we see this in terms of buybacks and things like that as well. So can we just lay out what the best case is here for this story, Joey? So to step back, there are some signals that like aggregate profit margins are increasing. So if you look at the data from the Bureau of Economic Analysis, you see profit margins hovered between 10 and 12% for basically the last decade, and then very recently shot up to between 12 and 14%. And if you look at publicly traded companies, a lot of them are reporting increased profit margins, especially in the United States. The problem is it's not quite enough evidence. So you got to like back up three steps here. It's not explicitly sure that total corporate profit margins are up. So the data from the Bureau of Economic Analysis does adjustments for capital consumption, which is depreciation, and they do adjustments for inventory valuation. The idea being that if you make something in 2019 and then you sell it in 2020 and the price goes up in between 2019 and 2020, you, that's not actually profit. That's closer to capital gains. So they try to account for that. Uh, the problem is we've had a massive shrinkage of inventories for almost all manufacturers. So those adjustments are very difficult. And even in the best of times, the uh, unit profits are a very volatile measure. And keep in mind that those are profits for domestically listed companies. I just told you like a lot of the price increases are in goods and America imports a lot, a lot of goods. And keep in mind that the, the companies you're seeing in the Wall Street Journal that are publicly traded are very large, successful companies. And the United States, they lean closer towards tech companies that have done very well in the pandemic and large companies in general tend to do very well during the crisis because they're able to better exploit economies of scale and they're be better to able access funding. So not immediately obvious that there is an aggregate shift or that it's not just contained to the very largest companies. And in specific, we talked about energy and cars as the big ones driving inflation right now. Those are like the biggest idiosyncratic price increases. Oil producers are net making a little bit more money per quarter than they were in 2019, but they absolutely got smashed for like all of 2020 when oil <laughs> prices were way down. And companies in the motor vehicle industry are making less money than they were in 2019 because they're getting absolutely wrecked by a lot of the supply chain issues. Some of the automakers are making marginally more money, but as a whole, they're not making as much money. So it's not immediately obvious that that Connection Sorry, goes just, one just to be one. clear, Joey, what, why aren't automakers able to exploit the uh, supply issues and, and raise prices on cars and, and make more profit? Well, you are seeing prices go up. 
But the problem for the the automakers is basically at the start of the pandemic, uh, most of the modern automakers, especially the American ones, basically canceled all production. You had several months where the, nothing was happening. They laid off plenty of workers and they canceled a lot of their orders. And critical for this discussion was they canceled orders of semiconductors and other chips for the electronics. And then when demand came roaring back unexpectedly, keep in mind that these are companies that are still scarred from 2008. They thought as soon as the economy is going to tank that they're going to be destroyed. So demand comes roaring back. They weren't expecting it. Now they're trying to reorder semiconductors and they're way at the back of the line and they're paying more. And so their productions were idled or they were running below what they were pre-pandemic. So like total motor vehicle and assemblies in the United States have been hovering between eight and nine million a month when normally they're at 10 or 11 million a month. That doesn't sound like a lot, but that adds up. That's monthly. (laughs) So it adds up to a very big gap and the prices for some of their inputs are going up. So even though they're able to raise prices, I think new car prices are up around 12%. On their end, they're absorbing a lot of hits to their input costs. Feels like we problematized a lot of what, uh, you know, the the assumption that corporate profits have actually surged across the board here. But it does seem like there is, you know, uh, you know, even you kind of conceded here that there's uh, for the biggest companies, um, corporate profits have been increasing. Are there other reasons to believe that those numbers aren't right or 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 anything wrong with the statistics there that might be revised later? So the BEA data is initially based on uh, financial statements. And then it gets revised with tax return data. So the data for 2021 will get revised with tax return stuff further into 2022. It's possible it will get revised down. Um, But in general, it's just not wise to look at the aggregate corporate profit margins and try to extrapolate almost anything from that. So in the 2010s, we had very high corporate profit margins relative to recent history. And that was a period of very low inflation. Um, And we've had periods like in the 1970s where profit margins were tanking, and that was a period of very high inflation. So there really isn't that big a correlation. Even if you look abroad, like companies in the European Union are doing very poorly. Inflation in the European Union is very high. Companies in Japan are doing relatively well. Uh, Japan is still experiencing deflation. (laughs) So the correlation really isn't uh, as one-to-one as people would expect. It's amazing Japan's ability to experience deflation oh, even in these times. It's beautiful. They <laughs> their commitment to it is extraordinary. So the place where, you know, I think all of us are aware is that there are some anti-competitive practices that happen amongst meatpacking industry. The National Economic Council has put out some blog posts on this issue. First in September, they pointed out that meat was the biggest contributor to the rising cost of groceries. Then in December, they pointed out that the trend had continued and that, quote, gross profits have collectively increased by more than 120% since before the pandemic, and their net income has surged by 500%. They also recently announced over a billion dollars in new dividends and stock buybacks on top of the more than $3 billion they paid out to shareholders since the pandemic began. Importantly, um, NEC points out that their profit margins have skyrocketed, gross margins are up 50%, and net margins are up over 300%. We we know that there, you know, there's a lot of anti-competitive behavior happening in this industry. It's something that like I'm pretty sure Dylan and Future Perfect have written about, Benjamin Applebaum at the New York Times has written about before COVID. Uh, and you know, my, my general sense is like, you know, these companies, uh, corporations have been monopolistic or, or oligopolistic, that is, for a significant amount of time. So it's not crazy to me that they kind of have the market power to be messing with prices here anti-competitively. But Joey, you don't seem to buy that. I would say I do buy the idea that the, you know, specifically you have an uptick in demand and that's going to have different effects depending on 
the market structure within different industries. And as you mentioned, the market structure within the meatpacking industry is very heavily concentrated. It's functionally oligopolistic. And that has resulted in increased prices. There are some larger trends in the background. So like the UN Food and Agricultural Organization sees global meat prices up 16%. There was pretty large outbreaks of African swine flu in China that from years back, they're still not recovered from. And production in South America has been really bad. But even accounting for, you know, everything under the sun, it's pretty indisputable that the meat packers are padding their margins and they're taking advantage of the situation. The thing is, that doesn't lead one-to-one to to headline inflation. So meat is the biggest impact on groceries, but groceries are a small part of the consumer price index and even smaller part of the personal consumption expenditures price index. So, you know, I mentioned to you that uh, car prices are up 50%. That overall doesn't even move the needle more than 2% for the consumer price index. Even if you're saying meat prices are up 12%, that doesn't move the needle that much for aggregate inflation. That doesn't mean it's not really important to tackle uh, concentration in the meatpacking industry, particularly because concentration means they abuse their workers more. They're paying them less than market rates or they're abusing their monopsony power over labor, like their market power within the meatpacking labor market. And they're probably reducing aggregate capacity in the meatpacking industry. So you've seen over the last decade, even though more meat consumption happens with greater economic growth, meat consumption in the United States isn't up that much, partially because meatpacking capacity has just sort of stopped growing. So we sort of walked through some things about the current economy that aren't consistent with a story of corporate profits driving an increase in inflation. What data would you see if that was what was happening? Is it possible to sort of describe a situation where that could be the case? And how how is it different from the world right now? What you would have to see would be a pretty significant change in market structure across a lot of industries. So a very big rise in mergers and acquisitions alongside a rise in prices. And you would likely have to see very low wage growth. That would be, you know, an industry is becoming more concentrated. You're expecting them to have more labor power and to be able to push wages down in order to keep profits up. The one thing I would say you should always keep in mind is the micro macro difference. So if you imagined a country in which, you know, every industry is run by horrible monopoly is perfect control over everything, that is probably a country in which the economy is not growing almost at all. And if nominal growth is low to match that, you're not going to get any inflation, even if everything is a monopoly. Like a lot of the time, the anti-competitive practices manifest as lower growth. They don't necessarily manifest as higher long-run price increases. Another good, good example of a distinction between like market structure and concentration is like the housing market where we agree uh, as, a, as a country that the market structure for housing really sucks. You, it's impossible to build in most big cities. It's extremely difficult to come to like good long-term rental agreements. Um, the, even getting a mortgage is increasingly difficult. But there's literally millions of housing providers, quote-unquote. Small, <laughs> <laughs> you can go buy your own house. Or you can, small mom-and-pop landlords exist, that doesn't mean that prices 
in real terms for housing are going to go down just because it's a non-concentrated market. That's a really good point. Um, I also want to talk about the politics of this, because one of the things that seems clear to me is that, you know, we've kind of made that distinction between like, obviously, there are anti-competitive practices happening that are important to address from the government versus is this actually the solution to the um, inflation problem? But, you know, we've talked about the podcast before. Most recently, Dylan and I, we were chatting about gas inflation last year. Um, It's a really big political problem that people are obviously extremely concerned about inflation, in particular inflation around energy prices and gas. And there's not a ton that the federal government can do about it. In particular, there's not a ton that the executive branch can do about it. Catherine Ramphel, who's a a Washington Post columnist, tweeted out a Navigator poll showing that uh, squeezing consumers for profit slash corporate greed is the most convincing explanation for rising costs. I think this was like a four by a 44 point margin. It convinced uh, poll respondents um, that that was a good villain to find uh, in this entire saga. Catherine Rampell pointed out this poll, and I think that it is probably pretty explanatory here. I mean, it's not just this. Like, Biden also sent a letter to uh, Lena Khan, uh, who's a big antitrust enforcer, asking her basically to look into whether or not corporate profits were the reason that inflation was going so high. So how much of this do we think is just kind of like politics versus people taking advantage of this current situation to uh, take on the meat industry? Or do they actually believe that this is going to affect uh, inflation? So I'm not totally sure about the politics of it. I, I know, it, like you said, I think it pulls a lot better than most other explanations for inflation. And I think part of the difficulty right now is that the bulk of the price increases are in uh, goods and services that people buy constantly. People you know, fill up their tank every day. They go to the grocery store every week. They notice those price changes much more than they'll notice you know, changes in uh, healthcare expenses or rent, especially if they're a homeowner. We have you know, seen, they're, not, they're not observing their owner's equivalent rent all the time. <laughs> no, nobody, if, if you know what owner's equivalent rent is, you're too much of a nerd. Get offline. Um, <laughs> wow. He just owned every listener of the week just in one, one comment. But I think it is true that there's like a lack of competition in the United States, uh, especially over the last 10 to 15 years. And if this is sort of a moment where you can say, we're going to take the political energy that is upset at rising prices, which is really driven by like a reallocation of demand. And we're going to direct it more productively at breaking up companies that are oligopolistic or monopolistic that take advantage of their workers and their consumers. I think that's a net good, even if it's, (laughs) even if it's not perfectly true, you know, and the market structure is very, very important. And thinking about changes in market structure is important if you want to understand the real economy. So oil is actually a really interesting one. Obviously, about half of global oil output isn't captured by OPEC. And so there's not really, I mean, that's a that's literally a cartel. It's literally, they, they, they don't even pretend. But there's nothing that the Biden administration can do except, you know, badger them politically and try to pull some levers in, in international politics to try to get them to increase oil output. But for example, uh, U.S. shale output, which is really the marginal producer of oil globally, has been really weak recovering from the recession, and they've not responded to increases in prices, partially because they're dealing with a lot, a lot of risk. You know, when uh, Omicron came out, oil prices tanked like 15% instantly. That's the kind of risk that's very hard to plan around. If there was another variant that was very bad, you'd see oil prices sink again. And so they're hesitant to fully invest in in new rigs and whatnot. 
But it's also true that there was a lot of consolidation in the oil industry in 2020 when prices went way down. And a lot of that consolidation resulted in impositions from the top for quote unquote capital discipline, which is basically a buzzword for we're going to invest less because we're really worried about prices going back down. And we think that we haven't made enough money to justify investing more. And that's, you know, if you worry about the energy markets getting more and more concentrated to the point that they become an oligopoly. That's like a serious problem. I mean, the main reason we care about monopolies, obviously, is because their ability to raise prices and harm people at, you know, when, when it comes to really important goods and services. So I think it's one of those weird things where, obviously, if you're someone who's really concerned about monopolistic or anti-competitive behavior in, in the market in general, it makes sense to seize on a moment like this where, you know, people are really feeling the pain of rising prices really quickly. And that's being realized politically when you look at polls, when you look at people's approval ratings of the president or of Democratic Party right now. A lot of what they're talking about is, you know, inflation. You know, there's a whole debate about why that is potentially has to do with media coverage or whatever. But it is the case that that's happening right now. So, you know, I, th- I see a lot of like condescension towards people like Elizabeth Warren who are talking about this kind of thing. Um, and, you know, I think there are a lot of good reasons to I think I, I find myself agreeing with a lot of what you're saying, Joey, this is probably not driving inflation. But I do wonder if people are just not seeing the larger picture here for her, which is just that like this is just an opportunity to take on some of these larger corporations, um, which I think is, is you know, this is the point that Paul Krugman makes in his column today where he basically says, like, stop yelling at them about this stuff. He says it won't do any harm. It won't get in the way of the big stuff, which is mostly outside of Biden's control in any case. At worst, the administration officials will be using inflation as an excuse to do things they should be doing in any case. And they might even have a marginal impact on inflation itself. So this makes a lot of sense to me. But I I think I will say this. I think it's bad to like lie. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I think it's like... <laughs> I think it's you good. You don't have a bright future in politics. This is a, that's a great, choice. that's a great like journalist mug. I think it's bad to lie. <laughs> to like lie, uh, just in the middle. But I mean, seriously, I mean, I, I, it's not even just like oh, like let's be like moral about this or whatever. But just like if you really inculcate certain ideas that you know to be false in the population about economics, like that can come back to like bite you in other ways. Like this is obviously being used by a lot of people to call for um, other more drastic policies, certain types of price controls on the economy. And like, I don't really think that's going to happen for a bunch of different political reasons. But my point is, it, it seems kind of irrational. If you're just like casual observer of politics and you hear everyone saying that the reason why prices are going up is because companies are are pushing them up despite the fact that their labor inputs and their costs of production have not gone up, then you're just going to become completely cynical about the entire process instead of like, you're like, hey, no, it's really complicated. Like prices are up and like maybe people won't really get it and that's not really going to work. But I think there are a lot of unintended consequences that come about from inculcating ideas that are just everyone knows to be incorrect. So that's I mean, I I get Krugman's point and I get what Warren and everyone else is doing. But I I do think that there are some unintended side effects from this kind of political behavior. Yeah. And I do worry about that long run. Like so part of I think the, the turn in the Republican Party against international trade was derived from like accumulation of rhetoric that met short-term political needs, but actually is like a long-term economic net loss. And the things I also worry about is that like, if we're, we're hyper-focused on price as like the end result of monopoly, you're going to kind of miss the forest for the trees, even if you're just focused on consumer welfare as the, the only bad output of monopoly. Because you're going to look at industries where prices are increasing rather than industries where prices are staying the same or decreasing, and you're not going to focus as much as necessary on industries where workers are being taken advantage of, not the consumers. 
So for one example, in recent news, uh, I don't know if you guys saw this, but Microsoft is in talks to buy Activision Blizzard, which is just a ridiculous nesting doll of uh, mergers <laughs> and acquisitions. You had Blizzard get picked up by Activision. Microsoft bought ZeniMax, which owns Bethesda. And now they're trying to buy Activision Blizzard, which means one company is going to own everything from Halo to Fallout to Overwatch uh, and beyond. To Candy Crush. To Candy Crush. I forgot that they own King, too. Yeah, they own King and and all the phone games. Yeah, it's crazy. And, like, the gaming industry is very concentrated. And I think that that doesn't necessarily manifest as higher prices. It manifests as really abusive practices towards workers in the gaming industry. Activision Blizzard being the absolute worst offender where, you know, there is ongoing uh, sexual assault allegations and a horribly, horribly toxic environment towards anyone who was not a high-level employee there. And like I said, if you're focusing on, okay, gas prices are gone, have gone up and we're going to worry about that, you're going to miss this really important story about concentration in an industry where prices have been going down for decades. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we come back. We're going to talk about um, what maybe can be done about inflation. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. All right, and we're back. Time to solve inflation. Um, <laughs> we have uh, about 15 minutes. We have 15 <laughs> minutes to solve inflation. What's that song? You only got five, five minutes? No, I don't know what it is. Okay, what can be done about inflation? So, you know, just starting from the very top here, like there's a really good Roosevelt Institute report that I read that kind of level set a lot about, you know, what exactly are we trying to solve for when prices go up? And and a lot of times when prices go up, obviously, like you just want kind of let to let markets work. If it doesn't make a large contribution to the pocketbooks of especially low income folks, then the point is we should let businesses come into the market and produce that good and then prices will come back down. That price increase as is can be a signal that, uh, you know, there's profit to be made there. But that means that like more people want something and um, someone should come provide it rather than kind of having any kind of government intervention. There was some of that that happened with used cars last year where a bunch of people started selling their cars all of a sudden on the market. Um, once the prices started going up and prices began to normalize, that's not happening anymore. So uh, because of because of all the issues that Joey has explained. But what, what are some other things that we can actually do, though? Because a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about is not areas where there's not a lot of concern here. There's areas where that's, you know, groceries or gas is really hit the pocketbooks of people who can't afford it. 
Yeah. So on a, on a first step, I'm a very, very big advocate for nominal income targeting from the Federal Reserve, which would basically mean that instead of targeting inflation, as the Federal Reserve currently does, they try to get 2% long run uh, inflation in the personal consumption expenditures price index. Instead, they would pick a rate of labor income to grow. And what that would mean is that, okay, if, if labor income is growing 4% per year, hypothetically, inflation is going to vary year to year but it can't get absolutely off the rails. And it also can't get into a situation that like Japan is in right now, as we mentioned earlier, where they have zero inflation and also zero nominal wage growth, which as a knock-on effect means they have very, very little real income growth, very little real GDP growth. On that metric, everything so far has been basically a success. Nominal incomes are about where you would expect on the pre-pandemic trend. If COVID had never happened, nominal spending is a little bit ahead of the pre-pandemic trend but not by that much. And gross labor income, which is you take all the compensation to all employees in the United States is a little bit off trend, but it's probably going to be within 1% of trend when we get data next month. The alternate side of that is like the real side of it. And this is like the really difficult thing. So I mentioned before, there's this pretty massive reallocation of demand. People are buying a lot more durable goods. They're not going outside as much. And I think if you wanted like the single biggest thing you can do to tamp down inflation right now. It's just get more people vaccinated. Uh, <laughs> get, get more people healthy because the more that COVID is able to disrupt the economy, the worse it'll be. And countries like you know, Japan, uh, which have constrained the real impact of the virus much better than the United States, have seen less inflation. And even in Europe, like I mentioned, inflation is fairly high in the European Union right now, but a lot of that is driven purely by energy. If you look at core inflation in Europe, it's a lot less than it is in the United States. And I attribute a lot of that better vaccination and better COVID protection in those places compared to the United States. There is one flip side, though, where it's like the fact that we have had robust nominal income growth, the fact that we have had robust demand, and the European Union and Japan have not, has been like a pretty serious boon to our economy, where we're going to exit the pandemic probably better in a better place than those countries because we had a lot of fiscal spending and a lot of monetary stimulus that those places did not. So like real consumption is up in the United States, it's down in the European Union. And this is especially, especially critical in the US because we did not have a job retention scheme. Like uh, very many high income countries had job retention schemes where they were essentially protecting people in their current employment. The United States did not have that. So we had a massive drop in employment when COVID hit and we're still recovering now, but still like about a percentage point off the pre-COVID levels. So like one story of what's happening now that I've heard from a few places is that sort of a lot of private sector actors overlearned the lesson of the last recession. So when 2008 hit, there was a really big drop in output in the United States and then a very, very slow recovery. And so when another big negative shock to, to GDP happened in 2020, oil companies, car companies assumed something like that was going to happen again and so canceled all these orders. And then when we didn't adopt the policies we adopted in 2008, when we did much more massive monetary and fiscal stimulus, they weren't ready. And so that's how we're getting the inflation we get now. How much do you buy that story? Is that sort of trying to, to exculpate the, the Biden administration too much or, or is that a decent mental model of what's happening? No, I think that's that's a really important uh, aspect of what's currently going on. 
I mentioned car companies, but that's exactly true where the executives in a lot of car companies were like remembering what happened in 2008 and kind of panicking, rightly so, because it took a decade for the car industry to fully recover. Oil is a little bit different where like oil output in the United States was fairly robust post 2008 because of the, the shale and fracking booms. But it is true that almost all private companies sort of were there when 2008 happened and they saw how bad it was. And uh, when the pandemic first hit, the initial expectation was like, this is going to be just as bad, probably even worse. And so we talk a lot about in like the econ community, we talk a lot about credibility on inflation, where, you know, you have to make sure inflation never gets so high, because if it keeps getting high and higher, people are going to expect it to stay high. Well, you know, credibility is a two way street, and the Federal Reserve has a dual mandate to protect employment and keep inflation down. And part of protecting employment is making sure that people don't expect the economy to collapse and nobody to respond, you know, to make sure that people know that people in Congress and at the Federal Reserve are going to put the necessary ammunition and the necessary stimulus to keep the economy on track if something bad happens. Well, a lot of this has been focused on what the Fed can do, um, which, I mean, honestly, a lot of this is only something that the Fed can do. But one thing that I did see the Roosevelt Institute suggest is they they pointed out that following the financial crisis, the Fed started buying a bunch of mortgage-backed securities. And they did this to sustain mortgage lending because there was a housing crash that precipitated a lot of the Great Recession's worst effects. And they suggest doing this with green investments as well now. How much do you think that would actually help the American consumer when it comes to the prices at the pump and other energy costs? So I would be fairly skeptical. I think people sometimes confuse the Federal Reserve's bond buying programs as directly equivalent to direct stimulus in that sector. Buying a mortgage-backed security is not the same thing as investing in, you know, new homes and infrastructure. And it's really, you know, a second or third order effect that happens on construction of homes. In the same way, if you had the Federal Reserve, you know, set up green lending standards or like a green bond buying program, it would definitely have some positive effects, increased lending to renewable energy sectors, but it would not have anywhere near the same effect that an equivalent push for real investment would have. I think you you have to either have the, the federal government organize like real consumption and investment towards green energy, or you have to make investment in uh, dirty fuels, for lack of a better term much less profitable to force companies to invest in in real stuff. You see a lot of this with like environmental, social and governance investing, where the, the actual effects are kind of mixed. It definitely has some positive impact, but it's a lot of effort for not as much payoff as you would want. And it's also would likely have to be something where Congress would have to give the Federal Reserve authority to do that. Um, <laughs> so if Congress is giving the Federal Reserve the authority to do that, I would sure hope that Congress is doing something on their own in addition to that. Asking this with the proviso that you do not speak for your employer in any way, which I feel like is especially important when I ask you about like what policy measures should be taken. <laughs> like my big dumb question now, and I don't know the answer, is should we be trying to suppress aggregate demand right now? And like I've identified as like a monetary dove most of my life. I thought the Federal Reserve didn't do enough to, to prop up the economy after 2008. I spent much of the 2010s urging them to do more for employment. And now we have the first sustained inflation of my lifetime. And the, the thing in the toolkit that they have to deal with that is raising rates to lower aggregate demand so that people buy less stuff and prices rise less quickly. Is your sense that 
that's still the best option we have? Or are there things short of that we could be doing so that we have like a higher demand, people having more stuff, more abundant economy without having to go down that road? It's very hard after, you know, more than a decade of watching an economy that was too stagnant because there's not enough nominal spending to come in and say like, oh, actually, there's now too much. nominal spending. <laughs> and I, I don't think that's true right now. Like I said, nominal incomes are basically where you want them. Nominal spending is a little ahead of where you want it. Uh, and that's going to remain true in the future. And I think what people are seeing from this tightening is, is really different than even in 2018, where you actually do have very robust nominal income growth. I think people forget that the Fed can only control the nominal end of it, you know? So you, you have to do a little bit of work on the real end. Part of the problem is, you know, we're at 79% employment to population ratio for prime age workers. The U.S. should really be at like 85%. Uh, that would be where Japan or like Portugal, not exactly you know, the <laughs> fastest growing economies in the world, but those are like where comparable high income countries would land. And so there's, there's room to grow, but a lot of that would require in the short term, getting more people vaccinated so that it's safe to go to, to workplaces, which is not something the Federal Reserve has control over. In the long term, that requires, you know, better child care and better health care provision for particularly low income people. So that it's easier to work and you're not tied to like a terrible job because of health care. That's not something the Federal Reserve can control. So I think part of it is being honest about the areas that the Fed has influence and the areas where they don't. And I am not worried, by the way, people are now, because inflation aside, people are like, this is a hawkish turn. Federal Reserve is going to like raise interest rates dramatically. And you're, I think you are going to see like a 1% interest rate raise over the next year. That's what traders are pricing in. That's what people on uh, who follow these markets really closely are pricing in. But I don't see a situation in which the Federal Reserve suddenly thinks that like, okay, actually aggregate demand is so high right now, we're going to clamp it down dramatically. They're just trying to keep, you know, on that nominal trend. That's what they're looking at. That's what they care about. And that's what's most important for them to keep in mind. Okay, well, this was definitely our weediest episode that we've done in a while. <laughs> so congratulations to everyone uh, for sticking around for that. Um, but that's all for us today. Thank you to Joey Politano for joining us. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Jerusalem Demsis. We'll be back in your feeds Tuesday. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. <laughs>